Facebook is gonna have the news. It is Monday, September 23rd. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier. We have Alyssa Walker and Hayes Davenport here. We have a very full slate today. We do, but we no guests this week. It feels... Uh, we, I so love lonely. our guests. It, yeah, it feels cozy, but I miss having like 10 people in the right. studio as we've had for the last couple of weeks. Do we have time for LA stories? Does anyone have a good one? Yeah. I have an okay one. We'll be the judge of that. So I went to a, I've gone to a couple neighborhood council meetings. Just as, for fun. Yeah. I mean, just what else are you going to do on Tuesday? There's no Marvel movie in theaters. And so the, like what better entertainment <laughs> And they're just and they're longer than you know yes. most movies. So. I went to the Studio City Neighborhood Council, which was in a studio. It's on the Radford, like the CBS Radford oh, lot. That must be nice. You have to go through the gate, like show your ID and everything. It, the system, the security system works there. It's very hard to get into. To keep people out of the neighborhood. Council. It was impossible. <laughs> it's at this pitch black lot in the middle of the night. Like it's hard. It was like impossible to find. I was there to make public comment for this campaign I'm volunteering on. And I completely miss public comment. And so I get there and sit down. And I noticed that they have 4118 on their schedule. They're going to talk about 4118. So I'm like, okay, it's pretty early on the schedule. I'll just stick around to see what that conversation is like. It, of course, like cut to three hours later. (laughs) They get all snarled up on some like debate over their bylaws. I don't process a single word. It is so boring. I bet you wished you could have cut to three hours later. (laughs) (laughs) But then finally, this guy gets up. He's an older guy who is their seemingly one member ad hoc homelessness committee. And he starts saying, I think we should file a motion to oppose these uh, new changes to 4118. They are, we've talked about it a million times. This illegalizes people sleeping on the street in almost all of the city. He was saying everything we've said about it. Uh, criminalizing doesn't help. You're just moving people around. It sets people back on their path to getting into housing. This is a complete waste of the city's time and money. And we're, it's probably going to be sued into oblivion anyway if they try to pass it. Then I watched people from the crowd and on the neighborhood council just light him up one by one, take turns yelling at him about their people are just coming in from all other parts of the country because our beaches are so nice here. The more services we give them, the more people want to come. That's the reason homelessness has exploded is because we give them too much. We have to let the police do what they need to do. The rights of homeless people have superseded the rights of everyday people, quote unquote. And every time He just very calmly dispelled every myth that they were perpetuating and just like laid out his case in a very like clear, plain spoken way. And then I watched the vote happen and it was eight to five in favor of opposing 4118. And he flipped somebody who had been yelling. at him. Wow. It was like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment. (laughs) It was really incredible. And so I was so glad that I, I stayed for it at this unbelievably boring otherwise meeting. He's his heroes. Yeah, was it you? Be honest. <laughs> it was and it me. was me. It was me. I want that to become a segment. <laughs> Alyssa, do you have a story? Was, I would just say I got to go to a panel sponsored by Assemblymember Laura Freeman, friend of the show, yes. about scooters mm-hmm. and micromobility that was in Glendale. And um, I was also pleasantly surprised, I guess, about the questions asked and concerns from the community which weren't really that concerning to hear from you know go to the public meeting where your elected official is there there was people from the city of glendale there was people from ladot metro uh, lyft and myself and it was actually like a very 
productive conversation about the challenges we face. And I think especially within the context of the climate strike on Friday, which a lot of people had been at, even older residents of the city had been there. It was great to see everybody looking for solutions. And maybe this isn't the one, but people were open to uh, a a wide range of ideas and trying them out. And the city of Glendale hasn't actually adopted a micromobility pilot yet because Mm. they want to put the infrastructure in first and they're trying to do like quick build bike lane and infrastructure, which is really great to actually hear. You know, I was kind of, you know, mad that people were dragging their feet. But if the intention is actually to make it safer and give places in the street to park them, then I'm all for it. What is quick in this context? (sighs) We'll see. There could be something else on the road by this time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it depends. The Olympics? I mean, I guess. It's by 28. (laughs) If you could, you know, summer summer's over, summer lanes, maybe it happened for you, not here in LA, but some cities yeah. did put them in very quickly. San Francisco and DC both yeah. put in lanes very fast. So yeah, pretty cool. You love to see it, as they say. Gotrick? I don't have any kind of story this week. As you guys know, I'm on social media hiatus. Well, so. I, thought you'd I think be that's out. a story in it. Yeah, yeah don't you want to talk? Your yeah. Life. A total media blackout. <laughs> Do you have anything <laughs> you just want to get off your chest? Maybe not to your followers, but. No, it's been, you know, it's just been, it's been a grind. <laughs> I'm doing the, the most boring social media cleanse of all time where I'm just too busy with work to focus on anything That's else. So. No, it's not. <laughs> a lot of big stories this week. Let's talk about some good news. Ed Buck, often described in the media as a Democratic donor who lives in West Hollywood. We've talked about him a few times on the show has had multiple black men uh, found dead in his apartment of meth overdoses, was accused of basically administering overdoses for his sexual pleasure, finally arrested this week, not for murder, for operating a (laughs) drug den. Not for the other stuff. Whatever. Uh, He is locked up because somebody overdosed twice, one of his victims, but managed to escape and is able to actually function as a witness uh, in this trial, yeah, was brought in by the feds. Mm-hmm. First, I mean, obviously, the number one question that comes to mind is what took so long? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the thing, the interesting thing here is that he is facing both state and federal charges. The state charges okay. are the the drug den charge that Got you it. you uh, mentioned, the drug house, which is a, an interesting statute, basically like you're providing a place for people to come shoot up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal charge potentially, which came, I think, a day later, is potentially a lot more significant in terms of the punishment that Buck could receive, because that includes charges of directly administering meth to somebody who died as a result, uh, which I believe the LA Times reported could come with a 20-year sentence. So I I think to your question, Hayes, about what took so long, it's a really good question. We, We now see from the complaint that was filed in U.S. District Court in L.A. that the feds have been keeping tabs on Buck for some time with a lot more interest since January when Timothy Dean, the second black man who was found dead of an overdose at Buck's apartment, when he died, that brought a lot more scrutiny to Buck's immediate surrounding area. Federal agents were looking for evidence of continued activity. They were interviewing homeless black sex workers in the park near where Buck lived uh, and has lived for for decades now about his conduct. And they found evidence that 
even after uh, Timothy Dean's death and Jamel Moore's death, all of the scrutiny that those two deaths brought and the, the civil lawsuit that has been pending in at least one of those deaths, he continued to engage in this same pattern of having uh, people come over to his place, paying them, administering drugs to them. Um, the complaint is just astonishing. Um, it, it, it really lays out a, a picture of somebody who was drugging people both with and without their consent. Threatening them with a power saw. Threatening them with a power saw. There is sort of an, an intimation that at least one of the victims was raped while at Buck's residence. That the, the community of sex workers from which he was drawing his victims would refer, refer to Ed Buck as Dr. Kevorkian. You can almost, like, the excitement in the LA Times uh, true crime podcast studio must be just through the roof right now. You can... Yeah, I mean, the article is so, like, all the articles are so shocking to read, but uh, James Queeley and Richard Winton wrote about it for the LA Times, and they highlight, I think correctly, our DA, Jackie Lacey's role in all this. So those the drug den charges, I believe, are from her office, That's from, correct. The, from the yep. county's office. But they point out that her office declined to take this case multiple times after Jamel Moore's death, after many more victims came to them and said, this man drugged me. I woke up. He was injecting me with a syringe. He had put metal clamps on me. Her office uh, declared insufficient evidence and, and declined to prosecute even as everyone in the city knew that there was something horrible going on in this man's place. I don't understand at this point why that didn't happen. It just seems like such an obvious case to, to, to bring and then to have to wait. So, so apparently the federal office only got involved in June. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously we've been talking about this story much longer than that. And she was at the press conference you know, standing behind the U.S. attorney as like part of the team that like brought him in, but really they they passed on that opportunity many many times. Yeah, and so it's interesting to see uh, in in the Times story Jackie Lacey saying we've done everything within our power to put Ed Buck away, which feels decidedly not true. I mean, we had uh, in in January when we were talking about Timothy Dean's death, we were talking about Jasmine Kennick, the lawyer for the family of the the deceased who was, was saying following the death of Jamel Moore, Jackie Lacey has been put on notice several times that this is somebody who is operating in a predatory manner. He, he's basically a, a would-be serial killer mm -hmm. in West Hollywood, specifically preying on black men, members of the LGBTQ community, and sex Some of whom had never tried meth before, yeah. and uh, he managed to get them addicted and yeah. administered sometimes lethal doses to them, allegedly. Jackie Lacey, yeah, I mean, there were other living witnesses. There were people that had gone through this horrible experience and went to uh, the prosecutor's office and the sheriff's office and said what had happened, and yeah. they didn't do anything. The, the, so the, in the federal complaint now, they have at least 10 victims. Yeah. I believe, including both of the men who died. So yeah, there were people around who could have obviously given testimony. They have done so now. Anyway, congratulations to Jasmine Canick and Black Lives Matter LA and all the groups that have been working so, so hard uh, to get justice for what happened to Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. It is a good thing that he is finally seeing some justice for his alleged crimes. But yeah, you just got to wonder what would have happened if the feds hadn't, uh, hadn't finally shown up. Let's talk about AB5. This is a state bill that we've talked about some in the past. 
It has made a lot of news with respect to rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft. Basically, what it does is it turns gig workers, quote, contract employees into like full-time employees if they do spend all their time working in the primary service of a company. So that includes... Uber drive, you can explain it better than I can. Well, I mean, it, it's it's a whole range of gig workers, which is yes. impor- important to note. But I think Uber and Lyft have definitely stolen all the headlines because immediately, as is very Uber, they refuted that uh, <laughs> dro- people driving cars makes up the core of their business. As soon as it passed, they were <laughs> like, uh, cool, we'll, we'll follow the letter of the law. Obviously, this doesn't apply to us. <laughs> yeah. And we're introducing a ballot measure next year so everyone can agree with us. We're going to put $60 million into a fund to start paying for a ballot measure to stop this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Uber and Lyft and DoorDash each have agreed to put in $30 million to a ballot measure that would exclude them from the right. from the letter. We're, all, of a, we're already doing great. Um, after also, don't forget paying protesters, which they did. Right. For, they paid drivers. And after losing $5 billion. Yeah. I, I, so they're saying like they don't just do driving. That's not part of our core business. They also hold up signs that we make for them. Yeah, I, I did. I, I, I said on Twitter, I feel like they went through something like a reverse DABDA where they started off with acceptance and, and we're like, this, this, this would fundamentally uh, threaten our business model. And they ended up at denial. So... Yes. So AB5 is incredibly important. Um, it addresses what the author of the legislation, Lorena Gonzalez out of San Diego, Assemblywoman. Just so what cool. a badass, I she gotta say. She has been coolest. so great rising, in all Definitely a, a rising uh, star in the progressive wing of the um, of the ruling Democratic Party uh, and, and a, a major player in, in the labor movement as well. And she has said numerous times that the, the intent of the bill is to stop worker misclassification. So this is something that has become, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, something of, I would say, one of the main narratives about the the economic resurgence of the state of California following the recession has been the reliance of businesses like Uber and Lyft on a, uh, a small army of underemployed, actually kind of like a large army of mm-hmm. permanently underemployed people. Overworked and who, exactly, who can be relied upon for a source of cheap labor and to whom they pay you know, no benefits. They are not responsible to give minimum wage. By virtue of this classification of all of these workers as independent contractors, which has been controversial as long as Uber and Lyft and all these other companies have existed, they've been able to escape paying into Social Security for them. They've been able to not have to abide by rules about worker discrimination that apply to other companies. So AB5 is a a landmark shift and it it codifies, as we've talked about before, I've been calling this the Dynamex ruling, but I guess it's Dynamics. Oh, I've been saying Dynamex too. That's how you pronounce it. Dynamics. That just sounds like Dynamics. Yeah, I I guess that's the, the, the ruling that was handed down by the Supreme Court in the state of California that said a lot of these same things that are in AB5, if uh, a worker meets a certain set of standards, then they cannot be considered an independent contractor. They have to be considered an employee. Mm. The importance of this law being passed right now, according to Assemblywoman uh, Gonzalez, is that basically that while that standard was applied in the ruling to everyone across industries, the expectation was each individual industry was going to sue and like see whether or not they could get a different result in court. So now the state has basically set a very clear standard and said that we are positively affirming the, the dynamics ruling, 
which will give companies like Uber and Lyft a lot less wiggle room to say we shouldn't, although they're still going to try it, but uh, it gives them a lot less ground to stand upon. I'm interested to see where we go. From yeah, here. I think the one thing that everybody is, you know, like brace for higher rates or, you know, as they try to, I guess they'll fight it as long as they can, but once mm-hmm. they can't, they, it might, you know, really dramatically change transportation. Actually, it won't really change that much because when you look at it, not that many people use Uber and Lyft in the whole scheme of things, but okay. a lot of Is people, like, well, what, what, like what are the in numbers ur- in, in urban centers? Yeah. Yes. It's a little bit higher, but like, there, you know, only like 30% of the U.S. population has ever used like ride hailing, okay. you know, apps. So, but in, in, in a city like L.A., it's probably more. And we know, for example, like in San Francisco, it's been studied that it has affected, you know, peak hour traffic congestion. Maybe but I want to think about something else, which definitely a lot more people do use is delivery, these delivery services. And there are these two big investigations by BuzzFeed and ProPublica about how Amazon contracts out to third party delivery people, same kind of thing. You know, it's a, it's a very, some people using their own car, some people renting these giant vans, 10 people have been killed. That's all they, they, that's what they know at least for a fact, but it could be more. And so one in eight Americans gets an online delivery every day, right? So how that's getting to your house, you know, Amazon (laughs) does work with, with, you know, uses FedEx. They used to use FedEx. They don't anymore. They use UPS. They use uh, United Postal Service. But they're going to start contracting out for more of these types of delivery services to get these out there. So this could really dramatically affect um, how they're getting their people stuff. And I just love that this ruling came down the same week that Amazon has now claimed that they're going to completely electrify all their delivery services. They are going to buy like 100,000 electric vans or something. They're going to mm-hmm. make their carbon neutral, you know, distribution centers all over the place. So I just can hope, and I really would love to see this not only changing labor, but also changing the size of the vehicles, making sure there's zero emission. Are we using bike carriers more than just these giant vans that are driving around endangering people? So it could be something really cool that could happen at the same time and how, or, or maybe not delivery. Maybe it's more like you go to these like locker things they have set up and you get your stuff. You walk there and get your stuff yourself. I do think that those are some of the externalities that you see when you export this requirement for your business to run to a contract service or to a a private individual that they are going to get like, you know, a a car or whatever, instead of if the company is doing it themselves, then yeah, maybe they do a, a bike fleet or something. But definitely in terms of labor, I think bringing up Amazon is a really good point. We've seen all of the really large tech companies come under fire to some degree for their labor practices in the past couple of years. And AB5 could potentially affect a lot of those companies. Like we have in the past couple of years, we've had stories about Google having two tiers of employees. Like you have the the second class citizen Google employees who don't get you know, access to any of the perks that you get from working in Google's offices in Mountain View. Um, we have the, like the story a couple months ago about Facebook's use of, and those Google employees are, are contractors as well, I should say. Facebook's use of contractors to monitor content, to, mm-hmm. to do all of its content moderation and how it's giving people post-traumatic stress disorder. And those people are, you know, not not receiving the same benefits that they would if they were Facebook employees. DoorDash uh, taking tips. Yeah, I mean, driving deliveries to people in a congested urban center where there's people walking around has to be the most stressful job it has to be one of the most stressful jobs you mm-hmm. have to do right i mean it's the the like you said the what people are going through 
they don't care. You know, yeah. nobody's caring for these. And, and Amazon, of course, yeah, uh, they, thing, they have yeah. come under fire for the same thing. Right. Logisti- same day the, delivery. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the logistics of same day delivery are, are often extremely hard on the people who do it. We have reports of people like dying on the clock, basically. So AB5 is a, a big, big deal in terms of the fighting back against the retrenchment, against the basic labor wins of the 20th century. The um, tech giants have have felt like they can get away with just fully rolling back and, and to this point successfully. So it's, it's a huge one. You can see anecdotally how much it has proliferated delivery apps when I've been going around knocking on doors for campaign stuff. Someone will answer the door and be like, okay, thanks, like, goodbye. And then you'll be leaving and then Postmates will show up right behind <laughs> you. It's like, oh, that's why they entered the door. <laughs> they thought I, think you should I just use that had time. their food. <laughs> Look at us burying the lead on this big story from this week. The president was in town. Not that big of a deal. A lot of talk about that he was going to go to one of the missions downtown, one of the big shelters downtown to do a speech about homelessness. Obviously, he didn't get within 10 miles of Skid Row. <laughs> uh, he went to multiple fun. Yeah, he was pretty close. He was at the Wilshire Grand that night. Oh, he stayed at the Wilshire he Grand. The yeah. Wilshire that Grand. is pretty close. Yeah. But all the events he went to were fundraising events, uh, private residences. One was at developer Jeff Palmer's. He did some speaking on the tarmac at LAX, basically, when Air Force One came there, uh, did not meet with Garcetti, didn't meet with any local officials, as far as I can tell, at least not publicly. He, When he was speaking on the tarmac, he said uh, about homelessness in LA, one of his big issues now, he said, we have people living in our best highways, our best streets, our best entrances to buildings where people in those buildings pay tremendous taxes, where they went to those locations because of the prestige. And now they're moving out of the city because the city doesn't have the prestige that they came for anymore. The state and the city asked for more funding from the president, from from the federal government, from HUD, and were actually told straight up this week that they are not getting it. Fucking duh. I mean, of course. (laughs) What a humiliating decision to make with such obvious results. Yeah, I, I quest. I mean, I guess you have to do that when you know he's coming to town. But the why? um, (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I disagree. I just, yeah, I disagree. I would say we're just like goodbye. We don't want to talk to you. We leave. Uh, I think would have been the better message. But I feel I understand why they feel the need to maybe say that publicly. But meanwhile, the Trumps. Some off. What's the office that put out that report? It's a strange office. Oh yeah, um, like a, it was like a special commission on homelessness like, yeah, and poverty or was, something like that. I don't even think it was that. I think it was like there was just some report from like some economic office of. Um, it was the Council of Economic Advisors. Okay. Who go unnamed in this yeah, report? So by the way, they they published this report uh, the you know the day before he lands, and also Ben Carson was here, but I think only in the Bay Area, making some like really ridiculous comments about, you know, how people should be worried about transgender people coming into their shelters and yes. things like that. It was just stuff that is not even worth so, repeating, so especially when there's so many trans people that are disproportionately <laughs> right, uh, homeless. that are homeless. So he he's making comments also about the kind of the myth that you were talking about before, that the magnets of these great shelters are what draws people in and kind of the, the whole opposite of the housing first approach that you know, has been, is um, the model and what we're supposed to be doing here. And then this report comes out from this office and they're using studies and books from like the eighties to like prove their points about certain, you know, approaches that should be taken in California. And it was just, it was like reading 
it was like it was like reading something from the 80s it was like yeah. you know which is i guess trump's whole uh presidency and campaign and uh policy directive but th- this is just it was just incredibly damaging coming here and and really making these non-statements about you know what we're doing wrong and then their recommendations which are really just stop taking care of people yes you know? Just deregulate the housing market. They said they said everything is attributable to overregulating the housing market. They also have a really stupid graph where they're like, it turns out the warmer it is, the more people are homeless, except for Florida and Arizona and yeah. a lot of places that are Texas. warm. Yeah, Texas. So really what you're talking about is California's warm and there are lots of people who are homeless here. The report does say, uh, give a pretty shocking stat. About a quarter, between a fifth and a quarter of the unsheltered homeless population in the country is in L.A. County, which does appear to be true. Yep. Everything else in it is absolutely mortifying. There's a, a supply and demand graph, just like a basic supply and demand chart. It, like instead of like actual analysis, they just pull stuff from like a basic economics textbook, basically. It is just pathetic to behold. But this just underscores the pointlessness of trying to do anything with like with this administration you just have to do it yourself really it's like i you don't even it doesn't even make sense like there's not even a a play that i i think the most generous interpretation is that the la politicians knew that this was a dumb thing to do and just wanted to be able to tell some like imaginary general voter that they had asked but like why? But I, that's, more, that's the yeah. thing. Is wouldn't like, would the more powerful is, message be like, "Screw you"? Yes, I, mean, I actually do. It. Yes, <laughs> but you know, Scott is absolutely right. They want to be able to say, "We need the federal government's help to solve this problem," and we ask them, and they won't help us. It's not true that uh, that we need federal government assistance. We can do it as a state, fifth largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. We have the resources to fix this problem. Yeah, I guess the, the if you compare it to the other big California versus the world type battle that we were undergoing this week while he was here as well, the whole uh, vehicle emissions rollback where they're now yes. saying, you know, we went to the, the California, Mary Nichols from uh, CARB and a bunch of California leaders went to the automakers directly and a bunch of them are agreeing to adhere to our standards and then the Trump administration got really mad and Elaine Chow got up and like made the speech about there will be one one standard to unite us all for you know 56 miles per gallon is just too much it's too much but we can do that on our own and we've been really forceful all of our leaders about telling Trump to fuck off stay out to leave it alone because we can handle this ourselves which is almost kind of seems even a little bit harder because we have to convince the automakers to go with us on this one. So if we can do that, don't you think that we can build some housing and provide the services for the people who... I still want to know what the argument is from city officials about like... uh, like I I think that there are valid reasons why more money would be helpful, but I, I would like to see how city officials would explain like the fact that they have all this money and have slow walked it and done nothing with it. Well, there there is the news this week that... But this other money is going to be different somehow. The HHH money is now gone. It's, it's spoken gone. for now. Mm-hmm. So that was like the big announcement that was kind of paired, I think, maybe timed with this um, visit because we have now max out the number of units that we're going to be building. What number? What is that number? It's going to be like 8,000 total units. So it's not going to be 10,000 that we were supposed to build through HHH, but we're going to get eight something. They're all spoken for. They're not completely all permitted or, you know, approved and everything, but they now said the money is allocated and set. So we do at least have this path forward. It's less than we 
thought it was going to be and we still need to make more. But now at least we can, if they argue that, you know, they're not spending the money, they do technically have it allocated. I guess. 8,000, I think, is the high end of right. the Right. Oh, yeah. It might estimate. not be 8,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For example, like all those new projects that were announced this week, like the final round of HHH projects, one of them includes the Topanga Apartments, which John Lee, the new council member up in CD12, is trying to kill. Yeah. It barely got out of the uh, Homelessness and Poverty Committee to let that even go to city council right. because John Lee... There'll still uh, be a lot of movement perhaps yes. on this. Mitch O'Farrell yeah. voted to let John Lee basically kill the project. So did Monica Rodriguez, the city council member who supported him in that election. So there's a huge amount of fighting still to do on every one of these projects. I don't think any of them have... Only a small number have been like officially... A few have, a few have been uh, finished. Yeah, a few. Yeah. Oh, no, but like oh. of this new round. Oh, 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 yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure how many have been even like approved or permitted or anything. So we have a long way to go uh, on that stuff. But I think it is helpful just to look at what our city, county and state uh, Democratic officials are actually doing this week. uh, Dianne Feinstein basically said that she agrees with Trump about where homelessness is coming from. She said it's coming from out of state. Just not true yep. to have been. Got to read all those '80s books over and over. Again I guess so. Just, okay. I've been doing this for as long as she forget. has. What is nobody wrong, told her? What is wrong with Gavin Newsom? He says the same thing. He's yeah. He, he does, has repeated it. Does not have that excuse. He has repeated it. Yes, and of course, our county supervisors had a big vote this week. We've talked a lot about the Martin versus Boise decision in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that basically said that uh, you can't criminalize people for sleeping on the street if you have nowhere for them to sleep, no housing for them to go to in your city. That got 4118 struck down in L.A., and they're trying to replace it now with almost equally draconian language. Instead of trying to come up with a solution that would allow for more services and housing, the County Board of Supervisors voted this week to file an amicus brief with the city of Boise to overturn it at the Supreme Court. Yeah. So they are sending this to the conservative Supreme Court, hoping it is overturned so they can continue just to make it completely illegal for people to sleep on the Which sidewalk. Which will probably end up banning sleeping on the sidewalk from a federal if perspective. It, if it gets to the Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court, it yeah. is almost guaranteed to be overturned yeah. and it'll be open season yeah. on any encampment in the city. Yeah. And they absolutely and we're know a part that. of that now. Yes. We're, we're, we're an amicus brief part of that. And it was two Democrats and one Republican, Catherine Barger, and uh, the two Democrats, uh, Mark Ridley uh, Thomas, a, a beloved Janice Hahn and Mark Ridley Thomas. Yeah who Mark Ridley Thomas is the head, one of the heads of the governor's special committee on homelessness or whatever. Yep. What I do find interesting is it's very rare that you see these battle lines kind of being drawn in our county government or city government. Sheila Kuehl and Hilda Solis spoke out very strongly against this, uh, against filing this amicus brief. They like the, the, it couldn't have been more clear what everyone's position was on this. That to me, I mean, that's like an interesting development that this is happening now. It's happening at the city level too. Like people are starting to disagree on an issue in in this region um, among our elected officials. Right. Like after we had Councilmember Bonin on, which was great. Like he yep. said, I'm against this. And then within the next week, I think yep. at two least more. two Harris people and Amaru, yeah, both came flipped. out and said that, oh, I also, you know, and, and they also said that constituents contacting them is what changed their mind. I, I can't uh, resist just pointing out that 
all three of them, Bonin, Harris, Dawson, and Rue, are on the Homelessness and Poverty Committee. And if they had all voted no on this when it was going through the we committee, wouldn't even be we would not it be. Right it would not have gone to the council. And there wouldn't be a map in the LA Times that now people can like hold up and walk around their neighborhood yes. and point. You know, it's just it's a it's a fuel to the fire kind of thing. And so now it's back at City Council on Tuesday, and everyone has to like trot down there again to uh, to speak out against this, just like they have many times before. And the only reason it's happening is because all three people who are now against it, well, either voted yes or were not there. Well, he remember was, what Bonin said that he didn't know there was going to be a vote. So yes. that was kind of also a strange part of what went. But would it have gone out? I mean, if it was there were only four people there, if Harris Dawson and Rue had both voted right. against it instead of four. Right. In, exactly. Uh, yeah. Then we would not have to waste even more time on this or, or or potentially see it passed. I don't really have a sense of where the other where the rest of the council is on it. The mayor says he's against it. you can it. guess. I, who, I mean, who knows? Like, they're not really talking so, about This is like it. one of the things where if it comes out of the full council, is he really going to veto it? Has he ever vetoed anything? There, yeah, that's a great question. I don't there know. ever not been a non-unanimous vote exactly. on the city council? Because they, uh, they have override if they have they get a two-thirds vote. Uh, I mean, this is the thing that we always talk about with, yeah. with the mayoral position in general is like the symbolic action is still action. Yes. Whereas, you know, Make them override exactly. it. If that's how you feel, make them do exactly. it. We have a little bit of good news. So when Councilmember Bonnie came on the show, he was talking about a, a solar deal uh, that the city and DWP were working out for record cheap solar power that could basically uh, supply 7% of our grid. It was being held up at the DWP because the DWP union was against it. I went to the DWP, the amazing uh, Ferraro building. You are building. really just getting out there. I'm out and about. I'm pretty sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the council member was there. He spoke. Sunrise Movement was there. So cool. The greatest. Oh, they're great. So great. And uh, it, like lots of people went up to the actual hearing to speak. That is a really boring one. Uh, even compared to a lot of the DWP meetings. The cool building, as you said. It's a better building, yeah. An amazing view from up there. Yeah. Because they really want you to, they want to emphasize there's nothing to see there so you don't (laughs) pay too much attention to the financials. To the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) It did pass. Pretty much everyone who came spoke in favor of it. Jack Humphreyville did show up to speak against it. We haven't really talked about him on the show, but he's a reliable asker of how are you going to pay for this and like everything else the city tries to do. But yeah, that was great. A actual piece of good news. So between that episode, we had within the next week, we had other council members say that they agreed with bond in on his homelessness yeah. policy and then we got the solar deal so now we just need the fix the city lawsuit to be rescinded right. or fought and then we'll have a perfect score on that episode that's called thank you council member that's called impact and you're welcome for <laughs> doing a podcast let's talk about this uh this herb wesson statement from this week so there's a development going up in south la what's the name of the development called district square district and square this is something that we we talked about touched on briefly uh i believe during our our last interview i think uh sarah uh, Sliman from streets blog brought it up but th- this is a uh development where uh there are been in the works for a uh, decade plus, I believe, at this point, gone through a number of iterations. And it's something that now, in its most recent iteration, is looking like it's going forward with the uh, approval of, of the Planning Commission with market rate housing going in the middle of South LA, where uh, 
market rate would be probably several times what the existing uh, residents could afford. No uh, affordable units. Right? No affordable. Mm-hmm. And so the pushback has been pretty clear from people in the community saying that this is a precursor to gentrification. The developer has been accused of misconduct in his previous dealings with the city, including uh, fraud. So they're saying what you're inviting this bad actor into our community and also not making any sort of uh, not making any sort of arrangement to ensure that anybody who lives here will benefit from this building. And also many of them probably will suffer directly because uh, because it exists. So I think that this is a, a clear concern in South L.A., where as we as we discussed at length last episode, we have seen patterns of behavior by the city over the course of the past, you know, X number of decades where benefits are decidedly not meant to accrue to certain segments of the population, particularly Latinx and Black Angelinos. So community groups, including the uh, Crenshaw Subway Coalition, a group that was originally founded to get a uh, subway stop at Lamert Park um, off of the Crenshaw line, and, uh, and now exists mostly to challenge uh, gentrification in the Crenshaw area, has said that this uh, proposal of, of this construction project is unacceptable to them. We now have Herb Wesson, council member for the, the area, and also council president coming on board and saying that he does not think that this project should go forward in its current form. Um, and specifically, if it is going to go forward, he's proposing kind of a new idea, which is an anti-displacement zone. And so for some radius around the development, they would put restrictions on whether it's evictions or new development uh, in the surrounding area. Uh, what exactly is it that he is proposing? So the details are not clear at this. This was just kind of, I mean, it kind of seems like an idol. It's something that you can say very easily, yes. but putting it into practice. Yeah. Uh, well, so the city of LA has some ability to control the way in which evictions are carried out. Um, so if the concern is, as it appears to be, that having a, a major new apartment complex in the middle of Crenshaw with, you know, 600 uh, market rate units would lead to evictions elsewhere in the surrounding area. There are things that the city of L.A. can do to say if this project is going in um, and Weston has indicated again that he would like to see some some amount of affordable housing there. But if this project were to go in, that that development would trigger some sort of protection against eviction or possibly changes in rent for the the tenants that are Mm -hmm. in surrounding apartment complexes. There aren't very many details at this stage, but this is something that he says he would foresee being a citywide policy. For a sitting council member, this is a major change in in the way that they have talked about displacement in the past you know, Mm -hmm. five to 10 years. This is not something that we've heard from a sitting city city council member. Actually, like talking about the things that they can do to protect tenants and to stop like displacement instead Mm -hmm. of saying like, oh, the state, go to Sacramento if you want to like to stop this from happening. I mean, their their power in these situations is pretty immense. It is. Not only to decide what gets approved and what doesn't, but also how to protect neighborhoods from rising rents and displacement and all these things. Um, I've been doing some like number crunching on new development over the past like five years or so. And it's about 13 percent in city of L.A. is designated affordable, which I believe applies to any income up to 80 percent of the median. Right. Which means 
if it's evenly distributed, it's not exactly, but that means that it's 13% of the housing for 40% mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. population. Right. A lot of those are for seniors or for like people with like disabilities and things like that. Like, like even those are like restricted uh, in some way to only like certain kinds of residents. Most housing is like that. I mean, it really, right. it really very often is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the city council's, uh, the, the product of, uh, of city decision making. All of this is like basically under their control. I think it's great to hear someone like Herb Weston saying like, oh, there's stuff we can do to prevent people from suffering from a new, uh, from a new development. Absolutely. And that in itself is a new development. <laughs> Going to too many community meetings. <laughs> the stuff they laugh at, I swear to God, the stuff that just like shuts down a room uh, at a at a neighborhood council meeting for like just a, like a, a basic joke that someone makes. They're so desperate. Any kind Any. of what's an example? Do you, do you so like a, it's yes. like a dad joke, but uh, like a. At one, of them, at one of them, just like an acknowledgement that there are other human beings yes. in the room is like a reminder. At one of them, someone was talking about commissioning a map of the of the neighborhood council area or something like that. And they referred to it as a life size map. And the guy was like, life size, that's going to be a lot of paper. And that we almost had to like end, wow. and the meeting almost had to end from people being unable to contain themselves, Start ushering people out. People were dying <laughs> in, in the aisles over this joke. This is the level of desperation. Wow! At these wow. meetings, it absolutely destroyed. <laughs> I want to uh, tie two very recent stories in the LA Times. One was Laura Nelson's story today about Metro, the, like, the experience of riding the Expo line and how awful it has become. I've been on it in a while. I haven't had reason to commute out there or anything, but they reduced service from six minutes to eight. The cars are getting so packed that it's become like a public health issue, basically. Tons of people are complaining that someone on the Metro board or someone involved in Metro said that they had received no comment on the on the reduced ridership. So uh, Council Member Bonin, to Which his is, credit, uh, yes, said, hey, tell I them mean, how you feel about this. Here, look on Twitter for one second. Yeah, uh, uh, follow Expo Line Ledger and see how many people are complaining about uh, the, the situation there now. And she talks rightly about like, this is going to move people into their cars. That's the effect of this. Loyal Expo Line riders are going to move into their cars. There's also a story by David Zanizer and Emily Albert Reyes about the fraud inquiry into Nuri Martinez's uh, campaign from 2015, where a number of, so as to get matching funds for your city council campaign, you need a number of small donations from within the district mm -hmm. of, of as little as $5. And then the city matches them six to one. And like once you get a hundred of those donations, you can get matching funds. Basically, they called around and found out that a lot of the people who donated five dollars had not actually done it, had never heard of Nuri Martinez. But they couldn't figure out who had gotten them to do this because the people who donated did not know that they had. So it was difficult to trace back to a source. This is city ethics that's doing this investigation. This, uh, this was actually Jackie Lacey's office. Interesting. Yes. So a criminal fraud inquiry. Yes. Okay. And it was the public integrity division. And they decided that there was not enough evidence to charge anyone involved in the campaign or even attribute blame to the campaign because they don't know exactly how it happened. But they did say a number of the donors were found to have not been the ones who actually made 
the donations, which I think is seemingly pretty common. Uh, a lot of stories by these uh, LA Times reporters specifically involve calling donors and saying like, hey, uh, we just want to talk about your donation to this city council candidate. And they say, who? Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, Nuri, uh, <laughs> Nuri Martinez just has a, a guardian angel who really, really <laughs> has no no affiliation with her, but just really wanted her to be uh, getting those matching funds, which is something Aww. that everybody, of course, knows about. And so... Definitely not a political operative. <laughs> anything else from this week? Any other? Have you been writing anything that you'd like to share, Alyssa? We have a little extra time. I will just say. Oh, boy. Something coming. No, it's not. Okay. Why do you always think the worst? I know. That's the best. I want something uh, to be coming. I, I, I would love to just point out the climate strike people yes. all over the world. They mm-hmm. said 4 million or perhaps even higher. But how was that not my L.A. story? What do you want to totally talk forgot. about? Yeah, no, I know they oh. went right by my window. Go ahead. They, Are you kids? <laughs> yeah, you're like get out. Well, then you can talk about it too. But um, I think I was up really late because we were we're part of this big coalition at Curbed of this covering climate now initiative. It's 300 publications who have d- decided to devote two weeks of coverage because the UN summit is on Monday in New York uh, on these topics and others. There's a bunch of new reports coming out, so we're devoting two weeks to kind of really just talking about this topic over and over. A lot of us do already, but that's, you know, just to focus all of our coverage in this one area. So I went to bed super late on Thursday night, the night before the strike, and just seeing the stories and the images start to come in from the other side of the world and just seeing how many people were talking about this issue that is really going to, I think, I feel very hopeful now. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I didn't, maybe when I went to bed, I felt kind of hopeful. And then I woke up on Friday and I felt a little bit more hopeful. Then I went to bed on Friday and I felt a lot more hopeful than I have in a long time. So I think something is happening and compounded with that at the end of the day, Friday. So this was like, you know, me looking at the news, looking at climate stuff, then going back to my writing about the vehicle emissions problems happening at the state level and the, and the federal level and seeing that, Tamika Butler and Hillary yes. Norton were nominated as the transportation commissioners for the state of California. Talk about some meetings that are going to change dramatically. Seriously, yeah. That you go to. I'm getting like goosebumps now talking about this, but it is going. This is going to be what saves California, and in turn saves a lot of the problems for climate and equality and justice and all these other issues that we're facing because these women are going to be now charging ahead on this issue. Tamika Butler, former president of the L.A. Community Bicycling Coalition. Is that what that stands for? County. L.A. County Bicycling Coalition. And Hillary Norton, uh, head of... Fast L.A. Fast L.A. And Tamika's now at Tool Design. She works at a a company. Yeah, a planning company. So Tamika, a young person on that board is pretty incredible. It's, I mean, literally jumping up and down, crying, all the emotions. It's just so... It, it we're really it's happening guys it's yes. happening Here, here's my dumbest opinion the fact that all these movements are growing at this at a time chronologically where we're about to enter a decade that is easy to say i think is significant i think we can define the 20s say more about that but like we haven't had so what is this the teens like the tens oh, like whatever know what we're saying now right, like it, it makes it impossible to really define and latch on to like what what characterizes this time in history because we can't talk about it uh-huh. now we can talk the about the 20s and i've been describing we can own the 20s i'm I've been so excited for the 20s. and attempting to brand this decade as the most depressing decade in the history of human civilization it's just not catching on 
Yeah, I mean, can't, can't imagine why not. <laughs> but I think it's like uh, I think there's an opportunity. Like the way people talk about stuff is important, and the way people talk about the '90s has a certain right. like connotation about what how people thought and like felt in that time period. Well, I you think know there's what a it chance is? to define the '20s in a it's very like, positive way. It's like 2020. We have clear vision now. Justin See, Timberlake already did that. <laughs> Justin Timberlake did that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. We will be back next week again. Goodbye. LA Podcast. LA Podcast. LA Podcast is going to have